1: Well, today we have a very special treat for you because I have a conversation coming up with Dr. David Lyle Jeffrey. He is Distinguished Professor of Literature and Humanities at Baylor University. He's been the Provost of Baylor University. He is also Professor Emeritus of English Literature at the University of Ottawa. That's in Canada. He's a native Canadian. He has professorships in Beijing and China. If I did nothing but read his resume, it'd take the whole time, and I'm not going to do that, but David it is an honor and a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Beeson podcast
0: well thank you it 's an honor and a privilege to be able to be in conversation with you anytime
1: thank you well, I asked David if he would have this conversation with me and we 're going to talk uh, in particular about poetry today uh, and and there's a reason I wanted to do that with david he this is he is a world class professor of Christianity and literature, loves poetry, has thought a lot about the whole literary tradition, not only in English, but other languages as well, going, I think you're a medievalist, aren't you, David, by training? That's how I started. <laughs> so you you know a lot of things, but I, in particular, wanted to focus today on poetry. Now, I'm interested in poetry. I've never written a poem and yet I read poems every day and they nourish my life and I want to learn poetry better I want to understand it better maybe you could we could just start by asking you to say a little bit about poetry what is poetry and how can we understand poetry as a christian vocation
0: well i think the best way to understand poetry is to approach it as an analogy to holy language in any genre That is to say, uh, poetry is a speech set apart. It's elevated discourse. It's a kind of language that we only use for special occasions and special contexts. And in that sense, it's a little bit like other things that pertain to the worship of the Lord, I think, in the tabernacle or the temple. They are kodesh. They're set apart. And poetry, by virtue of its way of speaking, which is very closely imitative of God's way of speaking— Uh, is able to uh, open a door to us into understanding that we might not get through uh, prose. By analogy, I should maybe just say that by analogy to God's way of speaking, what I mean is that virtually all the way through the prophets, every time God speaks, if you can read it in Hebrew, you're reading poetry.
1: And, of course, we think of the Psalms in particular as having great poetic quality to them. Uh, But not only the Psalms, as you say, many other portions of Scripture really have a poetic form to them. And so we're drawn into a kind of elevated language that points us to the divine in ways that I think are not entirely um, rational. They're not entirely explainable, explicable. What do you think about that? Is there something mystical about poetry?
0: I don't know if I would use the word mystical, but I certainly would affirm your general thought here. Um, Many things that we want to understand theologically, cannot be understood entirely through logical discourse or some sort of rational paradigm, because they are inherently paradoxical by nature. There are things which simply escape the kind of tidy sense of logic that we have. Let me give you an example. Aristotle says that A is not non-A. Something can't be itself and something opposite at the same time. But Jesus says that death may be life. Now we we need obviously more than the regular way we talk to be able to understand what Jesus is saying, and it's no accident I think that Jesus is uh, a heavy user of biblical poetry. Yeah. He, he quotes more often from the Psalms than any other book, and the next most common is Isaiah, mm. which is almost pure poetry. Yeah.
1: Fascinating. Now, one word that often is used in talking about poetry is metaphor. And another one is simile. Uh, Could you say what metaphor and simile are?
0: Sure. Simile is just a comparison in which we say something is like something else or we use the word as to indicate the same thing. It's a kind of parallel relationship. We see an analogy. So we call that a simile. But in a metaphor, we actually forcibly use a word which is not connected to the thing we're trying to talk about and juxtapose that word uh, upon the concept or upon the other idea in such a way as to force us to think about it all from the beginning all over again. Before
1: we turn to our 17th century great poets, uh, John Donne and George Herbert, uh, I want to ask you about the relation of poetry and truth Because Jesus often uses this kind of metaphorical language, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd. And, of course, we know that has a poetic reference to it, and yet it's nonetheless true because he uses poetry. Can you say something about poetry and how poetry and truths connect?
0: I think that that we need to understand that when Jesus, who is the truth, is talking about truth, he's not talking about truth in the simple way that we normally do. That is to say, we think of it as a correspondence between a word that one says and a reality that is. Jesus is talking about what I sometimes call, call to my students capital T truth,
1: hmm.
0: a truth that embraces all reality and which is actually bigger than our minds can reduce to a proposition. And so when he speaks about truth, he invariably does just what you were mentioning. He he, he makes a, a metaphor uh, to help us understand that the kind of truth that he embodies is, in fact, embracing all of creation and all of our experience, but in different ways accessible to us, in some ways not accessible to us. I am the vine, you are the branches. We can eventually figure that out if he helps us.
1: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So we need him as to interpret to be an interpreter as well as a, a poet.
0: Uh, I think that's really true. Yeah.
1: Now, let me tell you how I got interested in poetry. It's not a very highfalutin story. It was in high school, and I had a wonderful teacher. Her name was Lucille Johnson, and she would read poetry out loud to us students, and she would act it out. I remember her putting on gloves and uh, earmuffs and reading poetry about snow and cold, even though it wasn't cold in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, Felt cold because Mrs. Johnson would make that come alive by reading these great poets. I'll never forget her reading William Blake, uh, Tiger, 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 Burning Bright. You know, it, she just made that poetry live for us. And she was the one who introduced me to the great poets we're going to talk about now, John Donne and George Herbert. Maybe it's helpful for our listeners. Some, perhaps, Everyone's heard those names, surely, but maybe they don't know them as well as they should. Maybe you could introduce us to these two great poets, and we want to talk a little bit about their poetry and actually read a poem from each one of them. So who were John Donne and George Herbert?
0: Well, John Donne uh, was an early 17th century uh, person of a Catholic background. Actually, a family was uh, called recusants. That is, there were people who were reluctant to give up their Catholic faith, even after uh, Anglicanism had become the state uh, uh, church, and you were supposed to to, uh, to adhere to it in order to be um, we, want, we might say today patriotic. Uh, and and his family. Um, you know struggled with you know what was the right way to believe and to think and it's uh, really pertinent to his whole life to understand that he wrestled with this both within his family and without uh, he mm. had a brother who was tortured to, to death mm. uh he he had uh, also uh you know the um, a, a, a very bad experience of uh, of having to uh, go to Oxford and go to Cambridge, the, each place for three years. He went to Oxford at 11 years of age, by the way, and he finished up at Cambridge at 17 years of age with two degrees, but he couldn't take the degrees because he was not willing to sign the oath. So here's a very interesting guy because he became one of the most important Protestant preachers of the entire 17th century, yeah. powerful orator, uh, a fundamentally deep theologian, uh, and and very much affected by both Traditions by the Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition. So that's John Donne, and George Herbert, as actually is connected to Donne by family. Mm-hmm. That is to say, George Herbert, um, uh, his mother was a patron uh, of John Donne when John Donne was trying to put body and soul together somehow during his uh, his uh, hard times financially, and uh, when George Herbert lost his father at the age of three, John Donne became effectively his godfather. So. This is, these are, are people that are interesting in, in a number of ways because then John talked Herbert into leaving his potentially interesting political career, uh, and becoming an Anglican priest just like himself. Yeah. So Dunn had a direct role in Herbert's choosing to be a pastor.
1: So these this is something that's fascinating me about both of these people. That they were pastors. They were preachers. Now it has to be said, I think, that Dunn was a much more famous preacher in his lifetime and of course was the dean of Saint Paul's Cathedral, so spoke to hundreds, thousands of people, whereas Herbert actually ended up in a rather small country parish not too far from Salisbury, Bemberton. So yes talk about this contrast I mean one is a great city famous tall steeple pastor we would say today and herbert just lived his Christian life out there in a rural area uh, I think there's a there's a something about that contrast that's fascinating to me and yet both are drawing from a deep wellspring of faith and spiritual life and nourishment
0: Yes, they are. Dunn was brilliant, as I've suggested, as a university student. He caught everybody's attention. Then he went on to what we would call today law school, and he was a star there. And after he uh, had shown so much promise, he was made into, uh, as it were, a kind of member of the the Foreign Service, and he was sent to uh, Spain and to Italy, and he came back fluent in both languages. He was astonishing, and people said to him, you've got to do something really significant. But then what happened was, um, he actually showed a real interest in faith. He showed a deep interest, in fact, in, 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 becoming of service to the Church. And when that happened, uh, he was quickly a- appointed, and he, his career was like a, a Roman candle. It was like a skyrocket. Mm. He uh, he went straight to St. Paul's. This is an unbelievable kind of shift, from a guy that was a Catholic recusant yeah. to, be, to being the Dean of St. Paul's in, in a matter of less than two decades. George Herbert uh, had also a very great promise at Cambridge he was made into public orator he was he was also brilliant and he was uh, encouraged to go into government service but he actually Began much earlier in his uh, in his career in his lifetime, to to develop a, a really deep inwardness. John mm. Dunn is an extrovert. Huh. George Herbert is an introvert. Ah.
1: And,
0: and Herbert, in his um, introversion, um, you know, and in his desire to have a life which we might call a contemplative life, almost a meditative mm. life, felt that he should be in you know, some place away from the bustle uh, and the politics of London, and so he actually. Made a choice uh, to 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 make himself available for a small country parish, this little parish of St Andrew's Church in Lower Bemerton, uh, not too far from Salisbury Cathedral. Uh, he was, though an introvert, his whole nature was to be hands-on as a pastor. Mm. John Dunn's was a much more political and eminent and visible publicly but he didn't do what herbert did herbert would bring the sacraments to people when they were sick he would provide food and clothing for people that needed it hmm. he uh, he and his wife uh, adopted three nieces who were left orphaned uh, and and raised them um uh, they they lived a, a very a lovely uh, rural life in which herbert was a hands-on shepherd to a small flock,
1: and he wrote about a lot of these pastoral activities in the little. Uh, really, it's a classic, "The Country Parson," in which he talks about the importance of pastoral visitation and prayer as a pastor, caring for your flock. It's a wonderful, even though it's dated. Of course, uh, it's still a wonderful manual for people, pastors, to read today.
0: It sure is. Uh, he says, and you know, his large collection is called the the, the Church. It's within an an overall volume called The Temple, and he has a preparatory section called The Church Porch, in which he says this to people who uh, would be like himself, a pastor. He says, resort to sermons but to prayers most. Mm. praying's the end of preaching.
1: Isn't that great? Praying (laughs) is the end of preaching. Love it. Now, we want to go back to Dunn. We want to read one of Dunn's poems. Uh, Would you tell us uh, which one you've chosen to read for us, and then you'll read it.
0: Yeah, I've chosen actually one of his divine poems, which most people know through especially Holy Sonnet 14, uh, Holy Son of 14 is so one Batter my heart, three person God. But I want to read number five, less known. And it's because it's, it shows Dunn's intellectual interest. He, he was very interested in science, the, the new science, the things that were coming along that caused him doubts and confusions. But he was interested, he wanted to absorb it into a kind of theological synthesis. And this is a, a poem which shows those kinds of interests, um, as he is in, in a way, conversing with the lord about his his intellectual doubts and his intellectual progress so here here is um, holy sonnet five i am a little world made cunningly of elements and an angel like sprite but black sin hath betrayed to endless night my world's both parts and oh both parts must die You, which beyond that heaven which was most high, have found new spheres, and of new lands can write, power new seas in mine eyes, so that I might drown my world with my weeping earnestly, or wash it, if it must be drowned no more. But, oh, it must be burnt. Alas, the fire of lust and envy have burnt it heretofore and made it fouler. Let their flames retire. And burn me, O Lord, with a fiery zeal of thee and thy house, which doth in eating heal.
1: Wonderful. Now, two two thoughts come to mind. This I'm a little world, this idea that within a person there is in some ways a reflection of the entire cosmos. Uh, that's right. Th- that's, I think, a part of that classical idea that he's picking up on there. And then you sense this this gr- gravity of sin, the darkness, the the difficulty of overcoming it, the purgation, the burning that has to take place. He was conscious of both, I think, his utter sin and I think we can even use this old-fashioned word depravity – and at the same time, uh, the amazing, overcoming grace of God.
0: Yes, he was, and uh, you know, he he lived all of his life in conscious need of repentance. He felt he was he never could quite be done with repenting. He had, of course, lived a pretty raucous life as a young man. Mm. He was uh, what we would uh, today call uh, a rather uh, daring young fellow, uh, somewhat uh, somewhat promiscuous, for sure. He had. Uh, Before he settled into a marriage, he had uh, various and sundry kinds of relationships. He was embarrassed about them later on. He he also had uh, the problem of continuous doubts, uh, which he talks about in the poetry, talks about elsewhere, and, and he worries about these things as if they might be, in fact, a problem for him, sinful problem that he needed to repent of. So Dunn was the farthest thing, in some ways, from a person who uh, thinks that once saved, always saved. Yeah. He, he, he believed, you know, that he needed to persevere in God's grace. He needed to continually be repenting before the Lord and uh, to be honest with the Lord, uh, examining his conscience before the Lord in order to be in relationship with him.
1: We think of Dunn, as we've been talking about him, of course, is one of the great poets of all time, certainly in the English language. And yet he was a preacher. And I find reading his sermons uh, enormously inspiring and challenging, as well as his poetry. His sermons have a poetic quality to them. And here's here's a couple of lines from one of his sermons Even in the depth of any spiritual night, in the shadow of death, in the midnight of afflictions and tribulations, God brings light out of darkness and gives his saints occasion of glorifying him. Not only in the dark, though it be dark, but from the dark, because it is dark. This is a way unconceivable by any, inexpressible to any, but those who have felt that manner of God's preceding in themselves— that be the night what night it will, they see God better in the dark. Wow, when I read those words, man, I here's a person who's like Jacob wrestling all night with the yes, divine.
0: He is. You know, one of the big influences on his life was the book of Job. And he felt that the, the job and job's experiences. He only has five sermons on job uh, out of the 160 sermons that we have, uh, but they're pretty indicative of his sense of this connection between darkness and 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 the light of of the Lord's grace and, and revelation. And he actually. You know, more or less, argues in several places, poems as well as in his sermons, that you know there there is a sense of the need for appreciating how dark things would be without the Lord in order to appreciate the gift of God's grace and the light of salvation. Yeah, wonderful. So the contrast is very strong in him.
1: Let's turn to George Herbert for a few minutes. Uh, The younger contemporary of John Donne, not as famous in his lifetime, but certainly over the years, over the centuries, his light shines with great luminescence right into our own own times. I mean, T.S. Eliot was a great fan of both Dunn and Herbert, and helped to revive uh, interest in them in the 20th century. Uh, Tell us what poem you've chosen from Herbert, and then we'll listen to it.
0: Sure. Well, let me uh, read uh, the poem with which he finishes his collection. It's actually uh, called Love Three. He has a love one and a love two. And He, increasingly as he goes through uh, these poems, which are substantially conversations with the Lord, Herbert's poems are prayers. And, and, uh, he is inviting us to, as it were, listen in on these prayers as readers. Um, uh, but at the end of this collection, he concludes with a testimony. It's a personal testimony. Most of his poems are, are written, as it were, in present tense. But he gets to the end, he gives a poem in past tense, Love Three, in which he's looking back on what has been the story of his life. And, and his life, too, has had in it, this sense of unworthiness, which I think, you know, what ought to be periodically in all of our minds Mm. as believers, where we are unworthy of what the Lord did for us in Jesus. Uh, And and so he's reflecting on that, and yet also at the same time telling us what a tremendous relief it is to enter into the presence of the Lord. So here it is, Mm. love three. Love, bad me welcome, yet my soul drew back. Guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest I answered worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, who? Made the eyes, but I. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says Love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says Love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat.
1: You know, after that, I think we just need silence, don't we, to take it in. And think about the expression of uh, the inexpressible love of God uh, revealed in Jesus Christ. You know, that poem you just read, Love 3, by George Herbert, has had a profound impact on the life of many people. Uh, Not long ago, I read an article in the British uh, paper, The Guardian, by a person, it was called, The Man Who Converted Me from Atheism. And it was a story of Herbert and how this journalist, secular, no faith, uh, little faith, Uh, came to faith through reading that particular poem. And the great Simone Weil had a similar experience back in 1938 as she was displaced and afflicted and dissatisfied with the emptiness in her own life. She spent Holy Week at a Benedictine monastery sitting alone in the chapel. She read the very poem you just read to us, Herbert's Love Three, And in that moment, she said, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. Well, we don't think of poets as evangelists, but there is a sense in which there is a wooing and a drawing uh, to the power of Christ uh, through his love revealed in poems like that one.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that happens in a poem like that, uh, which has been a very powerful one for me, too. The first time I read it, by the way, I read it by myself. It it wasn't uh, spoken aloud to me, Uh, but tears came to my eyes, unbidden, Mm -hmm. um, because what happens is that he invokes with that poem the presence of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, and and he puts you right into, uh, as it were, what, what George Steiner calls real presences. I mean, there is a kind of a sense of the real presence of the Lord in that poem, because the Lord was present to him. He describes in that witness, that testimony, the, the experience of his life, uh, being taken out of his own sense of self-worth, uh, which is poor. Uh, and drawn into a sense of the worth of the Savior and what the Savior did for him, and then sat down and made comfortable in the presence and in the body of Christ. I think that's uh, that's a, that's the a kind of thing which is a perhaps only achievable in poetry we could write that out you're a theologian you could write that out in terms of a kind of a formula theologically uh, and it would be instructive for the likes of me uh, and others but it wouldn't have that power would it
1: well we're almost out of time uh, david but i wonder if you might just say a word to those who are listening uh, particularly to pastors a lot of people listen to this podcast from all walks of life and some believers some not believers but Maybe as an entree uh, into poetry, into this kind of poetry, what would you say to them as an encouragement in that way?
0: Well, one of the things I would say is that, you know, while we don't have probably in most of our experiences the experience of Herbert, he took his family to morning prayer and evening prayer every day of his life. Uh, and therefore was bathed in the Psalms, went through the Psalms every month, uh, morning and evening prayer. Uh, we don't have maybe quite as much as, of that experience as we should, but we should try it. We should try actually mm. to, to read our way through the Psalms about once a month and, and recognize in them and in the speeches of the Lord from the prophets, recognize that there is a mode in divine discourse, which is higher than our normal speech. And I, and I think then what i would recommend to pastors is is read poetry read poetry by people who who really do love the lord and, and whose poetry breathes uh, in uh, in the words in in their stanzas in the meter as something of their desire to offer something beautiful for God. Mm-hmm. This would be particularly true of both these poets. They mm-hmm. they see the beauty of the possibility in the poem that is perfectly wrought as an offering, something that, that is a kind of work that they can offer up in gratitude to God. There's gratitude through both of these poets from beginning to end. and And so... There are are two amongst many we could talk about Hopkins Elliot, we could name others uh from from which the pastor can learn much about how to think with the the words of the Lord, to think with the words of scripture and to be somehow not just not just literally there but to be there spiritually as one speaks those things, and that's what communicates.
1: Yes. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. David Lyle Jeffrey. He is Distinguished Professor of Literature and the Humanities at Baylor University, a wonderful scholar, a person of deep faith and great learning. Thank you so much, David, for this very wonderful, inspiring conversation.
0: My honor, my pleasure, Timothy. Thank you. God bless you.